Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm great. And as always, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com to sign up and get bonus content. Join the absurd arena where every oh, week yeah. at 12 p.m. Eastern time, we chat live on the Substack app and take your questions. And you can do it's that. It's really fun. Yeah. I, I did oh, it. you did it yesterday. I did it yesterday. Yeah. So we're going to alternate. So I did it yesterday and the subject was conspiracy theories. And we chatted about conspiracy theories. And uh, one of the ones that came up was Juanita Broderick, who I used to think was a conspiracy theory. I thought her story about being uh, raped by Bill Clinton was a conspiracy theory. And then as I talk about on our uh, Substack only chat, uh, I looked into it, interviewed her. And now I think she made a credible claim that she was raped by Bill Clinton. So we talk about that among other Clinton conspiracies. Yeah. yeah, there's some song from the 90s like called Dreams, like Dreams Can Come True. Oh, yeah, so, by, Gab- by Gabrielle. There we go. So conspiracy Rich, theories well. can come true. Oh, yeah. Look yeah. at me, babe. Yeah. We'll have to figure out the other lyrics to it. Yeah. That's a great song. A really yeah, great catchy song. tune. Yeah. Great yeah. song. And that absurd arena chat is on Tuesdays at 12 noon. Eastern, Eastern time. time. Yeah. And you also can find us on locals at usefulidiots.locals.com. Yes. So, yes. so many options. How's it going, Aaron? I'm well. I am in LA guest hosting the Jimmy Dore show. And uh, I just put out a new article about, uh, you know, an old favorite of mine called Russiagate, where I'm showing how the New York Times is basically misleading its audience to believe that uh, Russiagate was really something serious and that there's nothing to see here in the new investigation by John Durham into the origins of that probe. And so, uh, yeah, and a lot more coming. Mm, Cool. Exciting. I, on my part, for my part, I've been doing some Oscars watching, Oscars film watching. Okay. So uh, I watched the uh, Banshees of Inner Sharon, uh, Tar, which I saw in the theaters, highly recommend, The Triangle of Sadness, uh, Elvis, Everything Everywhere All at Once, oh, Argentina 1985, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is hard for me to recommend. It's a great movie, but it's such a fucking downer. I mean, Mm. it should be. It's about the front during world war one awful it's hard to recommend a downer yeah it is yeah i still haven't seen avatar 2 way of the water have you seen that no but i caught up by seeing avatar 1 which i'd never seen have you seen it yes i have what do you think of it i loved it yeah yeah i loved it pretty strong allegory for uh imperialism right yeah i interviewed james cameron about it back when it came out really yeah nice guy Um, on what show on a show called Democracy Now. Oh, really? I didn't realize yeah. that he had been on that. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm going to see it. Are you going to see it 3D? IMAX? I hope to. I mean, to it, it? if I can, I, it's hard for me to do anything these days. That's not working on my book or, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. But we'll you see. need a break, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> you got you to gotta schedule stuff to do besides right. the book. Because then right. you'll actually be more efficient. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because well, I bet when you're, when you're saying you're just going to work on the book, you don't just work on the book. That's true. I do also work on my Twitter feed. That's true. Right. So take some time off of Twitter. One concern I do have about Avatar is it's a three hour or it's it a, is a time it's commitment. over three hours. Right. So that's a that's a big commitment. It is. You know, and that's not use the bathroom. That's that, you know, that's a challenge yeah, for a lot of people. Myself obnoxious. included. Maybe you can get catheter. <laughs> just to get through that film. I'm down. Yeah, yeah. I would take that option if it was offered for sure. But like, that's a good question. How many what do you think the average bathroom rate is for people like how many times per hour or two hours or three hours do you think i mean it varies but what do you guys think like is in other words is a movie like that inherently going to require people to take a bathroom break movies that long should just have an intermission i agree yeah it should definitely have an intermission um i would love to have if avatar had an intermission they'll make it easier probably for me to commit to going but anyway yeah Yeah, uh, because then in between the intermission you could multitask you could go to the bathroom and on your way to the bathroom, you could tweet about Russiagate. <laughs> Use the bathroom, wash your hands, then on your way back to the theater, tweet some more. And then you wouldn't feel as guilty. Sold. Sold. Yeah. I'm in. All right. So James Cameron, make it happen. All right. Let's get to our four food groups. Katie, what do we have for Democrat Suck? Okay. So for Democrat Suck, wow, do we have a story for you. Uh, a story that comes out of uh, Ohio. I'm reading at Democracy Now!, derailed Ohio train released more toxic chemicals than initially reported. Uh, In Ohio, fears of a wider health and environmental disaster are growing after a freight train operated by Norfolk Southern crashed in the community of East Palestine, 
near Ohio's border with Pennsylvania on February 3rd. The disaster prompted authorities to release chemicals in a so-called controlled burn that led to a massive fire and smoke plume last week. Data released by the Environmental Protection Agency on Sunday showed the train contained more toxic and carcinogenic chemicals than initially reported. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources estimates the spill killed more than 3,500 fish in surrounding waterways. Chickens have been found dead in their coops. Residents have reported sore throats, burning eyes, and respiratory problems. So David Sirota at The Lever, at Lever News, has a very important video that we're going to take a look at. We just saw in the middle of the country a giant chemical fireball, 100-foot flames, and very few people asking questions about what led up to this. So there was a derailment in 2012 in New Jersey. Releasing 20,000 gallons of dangerous chemicals and noxious gas into the air. There's children in the town that are being affected by this. And there was pressure on regulators to do something about those kinds of trains. And so the Obama administration had a rule proposed to better regulate these trains. The National Transportation Safety Board told the regulatory agency, said, listen, these regulations should broadly cover not just oil, they should cover what's known as class two chemicals. And the chemical industry lobbyists went to work pressuring the regulatory agency to limit the definition of what a high hazard flammable train is. Limit it in a way that the train in Ohio, that kind of train ended up not being classified as a high hazard flammable train. The NTSB closely monitoring four cars that are filled with vinyl chloride. It has been found to be linked to cancer. Trains that were subject to this rule were going to be required to use a special kind of new braking system to try to deter or at least reduce the damage from derailments. ECP delivers the unmatched performance of air brakes with the precision of electronic communications. Most trains in the country are still using technology from the Civil War era, but the moment the government was considering making it a mandate. The railroad industry's changed its tune. It cited cost concerns to pressure against that rule. We want to see federal regulations when they're necessary, not just uh, in reaction to a headline in the, in, in the Washington Post. Obama's rule included that measure to expand the larger use of those brakes on the nation's rail system. But in that 2016 election year, the Republican Party got about $6 million from the rail industry. And Senate Republicans started beating the drum for Trump to repeal the rule. So note that David Sirota in this video is criticizing, as we just heard, Republicans and Donald Trump. Okay, keep going. Donald Trump repealed the break rule so that the industry does not have to even start to use these kinds of breaks. One former Federal Railroad Administration regulator told us that these breaks, which are known as ECP breaks, would have mitigated a disaster like this. And we just learned today, after the publication of our story, federal officials told us that this train did not have those breaks on the train. So, Aaron, you didn't do um, Monday morning this week. Rania Kalik, the inimitable Rania Kalik filled in for you. So how many Sunday um, morning shows, which you may have skipped this week, uh, how many of them do you think mentioned this explosion? Oh, easy. I'm going to guess all of them. 100% yeah. mentioned right. Yeah. No, right? none. None. Not any. Okay. <laughs> none. So David Sirota in this vid in, in the tweet uh, in which he released this very good short video writes, the Sunday shows didn't even mention the unfolding disaster in Ohio. MSNBC, CNN, and other news stations have refused to cover the political backstory. Biden and Secretary Pete, the chief regulator of railroads, haven't even mentioned it. Totally insane. Um, and people are extremely protective of Mayo Pete. So someone responded to David's tweet about this. Sad to follow Twitter and see this orchestrated campaign to slag Mayor Pete. Will be interesting to see if who's behind it, why, and then the money comes to light. In the meantime, David and the others are just so pitiful and deplorable, and yet they wonder why we look down on them. This goes back to my suggested slogan for Mayor Pete defenders. You can't judge the booty. You can't judge the booty. Yeah, that's true. Don't judge the booty. Yeah, I I, I don't know what it is. It's like, who will speak for the real victim of this, uh, of this disaster? Mayor Pete. People like this guy who tweeted that. Uh, there's another example that uh, David himself pointed out. So this is kind of like a the double Democrat suck. It's like the Democrats suck for not doing anything about this. And yes, the Republicans suck, too, which David points out in his very video. But let's take a look at this other tweet 
uh, that David Sirota tweeted because David gets into the Twitters. He does much like you and I, Aaron, although I've been I've been less Twitter focused. But let's take a look at this other tweet from David. So here's another tweet from David. He is responding to a tweet from Brian Krasenstein, uh, who writes breaking a Union Pacific train has derailed after hitting a truck in the Houston, Texas area. Some hazardous materials were being carried out by this train. No to Republicans. This one isn't Pete Buttigieg's fault either. And then David writes, liberals are now announcing massive disasters in real time and preemptively insisting the chief regulator shouldn't be held accountable because these people are blue on people. I think you came up with that uh, term, Aaron, for uh, liberals who believe in conspiracy theories like Russiagate. But I think this also applies to their uh, obsession with shielding Democrats from anything from which they should not be shielded. And of course, as you pointed out, Russiagate was a, a privilege protection racket in many ways. So a lot of Russiagate was actually about protecting the Democrats from justifiable scrutiny. They couldn't accept that they had any role in losing the election to Donald Trump. So they had to pretend it was all about Russia. So that's a kind of a blue and on response. Let's take one uh, other look at another tweet. This one is from Nina Turner. And uh, let's see how t- what what Pete is talking about here. Uh, you'd think that maybe this explosion would be relevant. Maybe he, he would bring it up. Let's see what he talks about in this clip. It's had its challenges. Right. Uh, I mean, if you look at what the American transportation systems have faced in the last two or three years, partly because of the pandemic, we've faced issues from container shipping to airline cancellations. Mm-hmm. Now we got balloons. That's right. Um, <laughs> He's talking about challenges that he faces as the secretary of transportation. Um, some of the challenges uh, include the balloon. Ha ha ha. Funny joke. Uh, the challenge does not include, apparently, this uh, disaster that should be part of the discussion. But in, and, and, and I saw another person on Twitter be like the all right, the 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 far right and the dirtbag left are making a big deal out of this explosion. Like nothing to see here, folks. You know, it takes people may not drop dead, but they will die later. That's how these things work. Yeah. And, they'll, and it, it will poison people. I yeah. mean, look what happened to Flint. And uh, it's also just a major inconvenience now. And the, it's at least worth acknowledging right. <laughs> and covering. And the silence is overwhelming. I um, yeah. also, this is not, a state that Democrats, by the way, can afford to just be nonchalant about because Ohio is a swing state. Right. That's true. So even yeah, maybe politically, them, right. From, you know, why would you not be all over this? It's just um, it's mind boggling. And again, it goes back to something we've covered. The 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 uh, railroad lobby uh, were right. successful in crushing unions. We covered that uh, a short while ago uh, in denying workers sick leave and and better treatment. And now they're at it again, I think, because yeah. of their sway here. There's just an overwhelming interest to ignore this story in Washington. Right. And Joe, Joe Biden helped uh, crush that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. So that's my Democrats suck. All right. For Republicans suck, let's go to the latest presidential hopeful in the Republican field for 2024. And that is the former governor of South Carolina and the former ambassador to the U.N. under Trump, Nikki Haley. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. What I don't get about these uh, ads is, like, does Nikki Haley think that any of her voters in the Republican Party care about kicking China and Russia? It's just not like the neocon brand, especially in the Republican Party, is not doing very well. I mean, Trump ran in 2016 and he won in large part because he pretended as if he was against the neocons. He called them out. Uh, And so Nikki Haley is basically trying to like revive the neocon message. I'm going to kick Russia and China, except I'm going to do it in heels. (laughs) Somehow thinking that that's going to appeal to people. Well, I think I kind of agree. I agree with what you're saying. I think the Russia thing is different from the China thing in terms of how it speaks to people. I think people have bought into the China takes our jobs narrative in a way that makes China bashing or China baiting or China scapegoating probably more effective than it makes Russia scapegoating. I think that the Russia story just has nothing for people to grab onto. 
I'm not saying that people should blame be blaming China. I'm saying that there's a lot of like xenophobia that's been baked into the cake that's bipartisan as opposed to the Russia stuff, which I don't think uh, I don't think that speaks to anything for anyone. Fair enough. I just think this appeals more to, you know, media types and pundits in the Republican world than it does to average voters who I just don't think are driven anymore by, you know, uh, wanting a neocon foreign policy. I just don't think that's that's people's top concern. You know, the way Trump was successful is that Trump pretended he cared about workers and, you know, he was going to make America great again and all that stuff. A a part of that that Trumpian vision did include fighting China. Oh, absolutely. Not militarily, but Yeah. 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 Right. Anyway, uh, anyway, cool spin on the neocon brand is uh, doing it in heels, uh, yeah, and we'll see how far heels. that gets. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Nikki Haley personally might do better as a Democrat at this point. Yeah, um, she probably would do well. But uh, hey, um, we'll see. Anyway, welcome Nikki Haley to the race, and it's going to be an exciting. Demo- it's going to be an exciting primary on the Republican side. Yeah. So now for isn't that weird? Uh, I have a story. It's a feel good story. It's a Valentine's Day story. Underwater kiss world record broken for Valentine's Day. Now you probably, Aaron, you probably don't know what the underwater kiss record is. I do not know what the undercover <laughs> underwater kiss record is. No. Well, let's take a look, and we're going to learn about what the record was and what it is now. Okay. We've got this. Nervous. Yeah. <laughs> Heart rate high. Which is an ideal. <laughs> And hopefully it'll slow down in the water. But the training, it's okay. It doesn't make it that much worse. So we know we can we can do this one. Gotta be three minutes and twenty-four seconds. So they have to beat three minutes and twenty-four seconds. There they are, looking very peaceful underwater, embracing, kissing. I mean by kissing we mean their mouth is pressed against the other one's mouth. So now we're at three minutes, 15 yeah. seconds. He's trying to watch. Someone there has a selfie stick. 323, 324. They've now beaten the record. How much farther can they go? What do you What do you predict, Aaron? How long do you think they're going to be able to do it for? Until uh, he can't resist slipping her the tongue, and then that's going to do it. Four minutes and six seconds they've successfully broken the record is it really a kiss though if it's just it's kind of like an extended peck it is extended peck sure where's the tongue but yeah but i mean yeah they and and the the one they surpassed the 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 three minutes and 24 seconds that was held that was Mm -hmm. uh smooched in 2010 no you're right but i want to make it clear that it's not like they were cheating and like the other people were really smooching it's a peck. It's a held peck. And which raises the question for me of, and I'm sorry to be a hater here, but what's the difference between that and just holding, having a record for holding your breath underwater? Probably a lot longer than that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but like, what is yeah, the difference? Yeah, we know like, she can do six minutes. Yeah, she can do six minutes. So, you know, it's like, great. So they pecked for four minutes, right? but she can go longer for six minutes. So that's the record I'm, I think is more impressive. But hey, listen. It's a gesture of romance, and that's always good to see, and uh, good for them for uh, lasting that long under the water. It's impressive. Yeah. Is it is it worth spending the kind of effort and time to train for holding an underwater peck for four minutes? I don't think so, but hey, everyone. Well, got what do you thing. think would be worth trying to break a Guinness World uh, Record for? I mean, uh, again, where's the tongue? Let's see. Yeah. All can, right, Aaron, can, maybe they... you can do this then. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Probably do it for 30 seconds and you break a record. That's a good <laughs> question. Even. Where's the tongue? Yeah. Not even. What do we got for Isn't That Terrible? So for Isn't That Terrible, let's check out this tweet from Alan McLeod, friend of the show, and check out what he uncovered in the Wall Street Journal, this headline, uh, which says the following. To save money, maybe you should skip breakfast. <laughs> that's the headline of the Wall Street Journal. That's the way to save money. Maybe skip breakfast. And uh Alan comments, poor, have you tried starving? Thanks, Wall Street Journal. You really have your finger on the pulse. Like the Wall Street Journal will advocate cutting food stamps, cutting Medicaid, cutting benefits to help people. Uh, They'll also advocate people who receive help maybe to skip breakfast. You know, why go for a meal that you rely on every day? 
intermittent fasting, not just good for your waistline, but good for your wallet. Uh, sure. But who is the Wall Street Journal, this elite newspaper to tell yeah, someone I know, to skip I mean, a meal? Yeah. You know. I don't actually think it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you want to do it for intermittent fasting purposes, sure, go ahead. I mean, look, personally, I, you know, I don't eat breakfast, really. It just it's, uh, that's but I, I would never tell someone not to eat it. Like, it's a very personal choice. Right. And certainly uh, you wouldn't suggest solving economic woes. No, no. That way. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's why that's terrible. Yeah. Isn't that terrible indeed? All right, let's go to this week's interview. Our guest is Chris Hedges. He is an award-winning author and journalist who writes at chrishedges.substack.com. Chris Hedges, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, Aaron. You have a new piece up at sheerpost.com on the need to build a left-right coalition against war. And you wrote this ahead of the February 19th uh, rage against the war machine rally in D.C., uh, a, a protest calling for peace in Ukraine, where you will be speaking. Talk to us about what you wanted to impart here with this article. Well, it's kind of basic to organizing that you have to, you know, reach people where they are. Uh, and uh, that's certainly a tenant of union organizing. Uh, but that divisions and, of course, the ruling class always seeks to create and exacerbate divisions essentially uh, weaken and, and cripple us uh, in terms of an ability to respond to power. The only a power we have, of course, is our numbers and the ability to organize those numbers, uh, especially if you go back to unions to carry out strikes. That's the only weapon or the most potent weapon in the hands of working men and women. Uh, so this kind of woke politics where you write off people where the, this is being sponsored with libertarians. Ron Paul is going to speak and you have groups. I mean, you have Medea Benjamin, you know, certainly one of the most important anti-war activists and organizers in the country was asked by the staff at Code Pink, which she founded, co-founded, not to speak. Uh, and unfortunately, she agreed she's still going to come to the rally. Uh, Veterans for Peace, uh, another group I respect, is not endorsing uh, the rally, and this is just to slit our own throats so that we're going to have to build these coalitions if we're going to be effective. I mean, I would, you know, have everybody look at the demands that are listed. It's called Rage Against the War Machine. Uh, they're wonderful. I mean, uh, you know, I'll not one more penny for the war in Ukraine, negotiate peace, stop the war inflation, disband NATO, global nuclear uh, de-escalation, slash the Pentagon budget, abolish the CIA, and military industrial deep state, abolish war and empire, restore civil liberties and free Julian Assange. Well, I, I can tell you, having spent 20 years in war zones, seven of them in the Middle East, being a friend of Julian, uh, they're not going to discard these allies. They don't have the luxury of uh, virtue signaling. Uh, you know, these are the people who are suffering directly from empire and from the crimes of empire. Yeah, you write uh, the title of your piece is there are no permanent allies, only permanent power. So how would you describe this allyship or this uh, coalition building? Well, the, the, that we're united around these issues in this particular case, primarily permanent war. Uh, but some libertarians, maybe most uh, libertarians uh, propose uh, all sorts of uh, I mean, abolishing Medicare, abolishing the minimum right. wage, that kind of stuff. Uh, you have one speaker who apparently has made derogatory comments about the LGBTQ community. I didn't organize it. There are probably, you know, people on it, the list I might not have invited. And so certainly on those issues, you uh, I'm not going to build alliances around abolishing the minimum wage, for instance, or right. abolishing Social Security. Um, but uh, on these issues, when we can be brought together were, of course, far more powerful. And this frightens the power elite. It's when those uh, unifications or alliances are made. I mean, this is why Fred Hampton, he was only 24 years old when the FBI and the Chicago police assassinated, but they went after him. I mean, he's an amazing figure, Black Panther. And he uh, was organizing with the white uh, working class community in Chicago, many of whom were openly racist. Uh, but boy, that's that's when you become a threat. Was it Martin Luther King who said, if, you're, if your coalition doesn't make you uncomfortable, it's not big enough? <laughs> I, I don't remember, but that, uh, 
Uh, of course, King had to, you know, spend his entire organizing life having to deal with the bane of white liberals. Uh, uh, sure, I mean that if, if we can agree on issues such as permanent war and uh, security and surveillance state and the persecution of Julian Assange, it's kind of idiotic uh, not if the people are willing to stand with us on those issues, who on other issues we, of course, may uh, have differences with them about. It's, it's idiotic. Now, now you know, this isn't to say that there aren't red lines. Right. Uh, I certainly would not uh, join a protest that had neo-Nazi groups like the Aryan Nations or militias like the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. I mean, there are there are lines that have to be drawn. Uh, but uh, I, these people are part of the political spectrum. They're not part of, they don't share beliefs that I share, uh, but on, on these issues, they're willing to essentially mobilize. Uh, uh, and all, I think that list, I, I have, I, you know, I defy anyone on the left, left to uh, have any disagreement with those uh, demands. So if they want to join us on those demands, they're welcome. It's yeah, there are even people who are on the speakers list who I, as you said, you said maybe you wouldn't have invited some. They've definitely said things that I find repugnant, but and th this is a strategic question and it's not easily answered, I guess. But I do think there's something to reaching out to people who have ideas we disagree with. And if we can mobilize them to be anti war, I think that's actually a good thing. I mean, you have to have people who you disagree with in, in the anti war movement for it to be big enough. Of course. And uh, not only that, but, you know, organizing itself is an educational process. Right. Uh, you know, for instance, if you believe uh, the myth that somehow black people are responsible for your economic decline as a member of the white working class, when you organize and confront the monolith of corporate power, let's say Walmart or Amazon, that in itself is a kind of uh, educating process because when you confront power, then you're actually forced to uh, to uh, discard those kinds of myths for the reality of who it is that's carrying out corporate oppression. And in this article, uh, which is, as you said, there are no permanent allies, only permanent power. It's on my Substack. It's also on uh, Bob Shear's post, uh, Shear post, Bob Shear's site. I talk about as a boy, I was like 11 or 12, but my father who'd been a World War II veteran. He'd been a sergeant in North Africa in World War II, uh, but he was a member of concerned clergy and laity about Vietnam, this uh, radical uh, anti-war group that included the Phil and Daniel Berrigan and other clergy. So I used to go with them as a kid. Uh, and, and what's interesting, I was telling Mark Rudd this because they didn't know the Mark Rudd, one of the leaders of SDS. I said, you know, most of those clergy were veterans. I know because they were all my, my father, that was my father's group and most of them were combat veterans. Uh, they understood violence. Uh, now, there was a lot in the civil rights movement. I mean, these people would, my father and others, clergy, would go in clerical collars. Uh, they didn't like the yippies. Uh, they hated the weather underground, which, of course, embraced uh, violence. Uh, they didn't like the drug use. Uh, they didn't like that some of the protesters would bait and insult the police. And then you had all these factions within the anti-war movement, Maoists and Leninists and Trotskyites. Uh, but they realized that that was, you know, when they came together against the Vietnam War, uh, although there were sharp differences, both in terms of their lifestyle and their belief system, they coalesced around permanent war. And as I note in the article, Daniel Berrigan, who is arguably one of the most important anti-war activists in American history, has spent his whole life in and out of jail, including two years in federal prison. He opposed abortion. Right. Uh, and, Which I didn't realize somehow, even though it's yeah, probably... Yeah, yeah. And he was public about it. He used to say... At rallies, I mean, because everybody would gasp, of course, but he would say, you know, if you hate war, if you're if you're against war, you have to be against abortion. Now, that's not, a, you know, because I, I love Berrigan. He was a friend. He baptized my daughter. Uh, but I don't share that. Uh, uh, and Daniel was Dan was also a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist. But, uh, right. you know, the, the, you would you throw the baby out with the baptismal water, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you know, there would be all sorts of. I suspect groups on the left that on that issue alone would want to deplatform him. And that's just uh, suicidal in terms of actually building an effective mass organization that confronts power, especially military power. On your point about 
not organizing or joining with Nazis. I mean, part of the point of this rally, I think, is to oppose Nazis because it's just a fact that the U.S. is arming a Ukrainian military. (laughs) It has a neo-Nazi paramilitary formation. Uh, incorporated into it, the Azov Battalion, and yeah. that uh, what, that's one of many things that gets overlooked. But I want to ask you about um, parallels to protests in the past. Um, Chuck Zlatkin, who is a uh, uh, organizer with the Postal Union in New York City, and also is an organizer uh, of weekly rallies in support of Julian Assange, he wrote a, a piece recently for for Consortium News, making the same case as yours, and he pointed out that. When he was involved in helping to organize for the big rally in 1982, in June 1982 in New York City, against nuclear weapons, which got hundreds of thousands of people to turn out. He Including out, me and my parents when I was one year old. Oh, wow. There you go. Uh, he pointed out what a diverse coalition was a part of that. And he, as a part of his article, he quotes from the New York Times uh, from that time uh, and their report on the demonstration. And I want to read from it because it's just... I think it's very striking. So this is from June 13th, 1982. And it says this, hundreds of thousands of peaceful demonstrators opposed to nuclear arms overwhelmed Central Park and Midtown Manhattan yesterday. The vast parade and rally organized by a coalition of peace groups brought together pacifists and anarchists, children and Buddhist monks, Roman Catholic bishops and communist party leaders, university students and union members. There were delegations from Vermont and Montana, Bangladesh and Zambia, and from many other places. The smiling, hand-clapping line of marchers was more than three miles long, and the participants carried placards in dozens of languages. I'm just wondering, Chris, if you could compare the spirit of that protest back then to the kind of sectarian factionalism that we're seeing now that is making it very, very difficult to organize massive rallies like we saw back in 1982. So... The people who care about this kind of, you know, woke political correctness or moral absolutism don't organize. Uh, They come from the elite. Uh, They are ensconced in universities and uh, they don't they don't work with, uh, uh, you you know, the working class. They, They come from groups of privilege. They may not economically be privileged themselves, but usually they're certainly educated. They're educational level is one that is uh, not attained by the rest of the country. Uh, and it's it's about moral purity. It's not about actually organizing. I mean, this is part of the problem. And, and I uh, wrote, as uh, uh, Katie had mentioned, this column called Woke Imperialism. But the opening of that column, and all, all this can be found on my substack, chrisedges.substack.com, uh, about the murder of uh, of Nichols by the five black Memphis police officers uh, and, and how that alone should be enough to implode the fantasy of identity politics and diversity as a solution to our economic and political decay because you had a, the now five former officers were all black. The city's police department is headed by a black woman. None of this help Nichols, who was another victim of modern day police lynching. So that whole, and I quote uh, Glenn Ford, the late Glenn Ford, who was the editor of the Black Agenda Report, who talked about how uh, these organizations uh, will, uh, who, and of course, as Glenn pointed out, they're the ones who write the script, it's their drama, but they will choose, in his words, the actors, whether they're black or brown or yellow or red or whatever they want. Uh, but it, it becomes, he calls them representationalists. Uh, so uh, you don't actually uh, disrupt the structures of oppression, but you give them a face. I mean, this is, you know, a, a, a Barack Obama, I think, is a perfect example of this, which is why when he won the election, advertising age gave him its annual marketer of the year because they understood the experts or the professionals understood that he was a brand and that, and how successful uh, that brand had uh, become. Uh, colonialism figured this out a long time ago, whether it's Papa Doc in Haiti or Anastasio Somoza in Nicaragua or Mobutu Sesi Seko in the Congo or, uh, you know, this is, and what we're living under is a species of corporate colonialism. That when the sole criteria is whether you're a woman or whether you're gay or whether you're uh, uh, black or when that's the sole criteria, then of course the ruling class plays us 
like a violin. And in that article, I talk about Charles Curtis, first Native American vice president. But of course, he pushed through assimilation. He revoked tribal land titles, Clarence Thomas, uh, Victoria Newland in the State Department, who's you know, a war hawk. She used to work for in Cheney. She was Cheney's uh, foreign policy uh, expert or, or advisor when he was vice president. Uh, Lloyd Austin, of course, is black secretary of defense. The, 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 that woke politics, I mean, the Pentagon, of course, accepts transgender uh, soldiers. Uh, you have two women who are CEOs of major defense contractors, Northrop Grumman, that's Kathy Warden. Uh, and then uh, also uh, the CEO of General Dynamics is a woman. Janet Yellen is a woman who promotes increasing unemployment and job insecurity as a way to battle inflation. Uh, you know, it's on and on and on. Even in Hollywood, I mentioned Catherine Bigelow, who's held up as a, because she's a female director, but what she makes zero dark 30, which is agitprop for the CIA. So uh, the, we're getting played where the, you know, the ruling elites are playing us very, very effectively. Now that doesn't mean we don't need diversity. Uh, and I end that column by saying that, uh, you know, diversity is an asset when it serves the oppressed, uh, but it's a con when it serves the oppressors. It seems, I mean, it seems like it's necessary, but insufficient and also potentially dangerous when it's well, used, but it's, when it's, it's weaponized. Diversity devoid of values. I mean, if you, if you are, there's no shortage of people who are willing for positions of power uh, and wealth to serve the system and betray their own. I would claim, I think that's precisely defines the Obama presidency. Um, but it, it, it's, we, we certainly need diversity. We need all sorts of different voices, but not devoid of values, not devoid of ethics. You know, I was talking to Norman Finkelstein recently about Obama, and he pointed out this, that there's something so cynical about what Obama and his aides did in terms of they marketed Obama as being the redeemer, that if you voted for Obama, then basically that would heal racism in the U.S. And then after Obama leaves office and Trump comes in and he runs against Obama's neoliberal le legacy and pretends as if he's going to save the working class after Obama betrayed them, then you have a lot of voter, a significant amount of voters defecting from Obama to Trump. And all of a sudden, all these people became racist because they voted for Trump. So it's like you paint Obama as being the only way to end racism in the U.S. And as soon as people abandon Obama because he betrayed the working class, all of a sudden, all of them are dismissed as racist. And also not just the working class, but I mean, with the housing crisis, for instance, right, that was a really racialized crisis. So when Hillary Clinton says, well, breaking up the banks and racism, no, which was her way of smearing Bernie. So no one said it would end racism, but there were major racial implications of the housing crisis. Well, let's be clear that the Clintons and Biden built their political careers on racist dog whistles and racist policies. Uh, Biden, by the way, who for many, many years opposed abortion, uh, but Biden uh, called, it was anti-busing. Right. Uh, it was the Biden and Clintons who pushed through the 1994 omnibus crime bill, uh, the three strikes you're outlaw, so three felonies, you have no chance for parole, you spend the rest of your life in prison, doubling the size of the prison population, militarizing the police, super predators. Uh, sure, Trump's a racist, uh, but uh, Biden and Clinton's uh, and many other neocons who seized control of the Democratic Party uh, were also they 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 appeal that famous thing with Jesse Jackson and was it Sister Soldier? Sister Soldier, yeah. yeah. No, I mean they 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 they're just as dirty. Uh, they're just not as overt, but they're just as dirty as Trump in terms of playing to that racist issue. And the fact is, I covered the war in Yugoslavia when you create that kind of economic stress and economic misery, then people retreat into their tribe. Uh, and uh, and it does fuel a kind of racism towards the scapegoat. I remember walking through Montgomery, Alabama with Brian Stevenson a couple of years ago, uh, the great civil rights attorney. And Brian was pointing out all the Confederate uh, plaques and memorials that had been put up throughout the city. And remember, half of Montgomery's black. And then Brian said, well, most of those have gone up in the last 10 years. And I said, well, that's exactly what happened in Yugoslavia with a 
economic meltdown of Yugoslavia, where people lost, you know, what Durkheim would call their social bonds, creating Durkheim's notion of anime, people retreat uh, because their, their dignity, their sense of self-worth, all of that is under assault. So they retreat into these mythical narratives, whether it's as an ethnic Serb or a Croat or whatever, or in the case of the white working class, this kind of neo-Confederate uh, vision of, you know, the returning the lost glory uh, that came with white supremacy, then people become susceptible to that. So it's not that the racism isn't there, and it's not that it's worse. All of that is true. But the, the, the entire political establishment, I mean, you can argue that the policies that were pushed through, especially during the Clinton administration, uh, were some of the worst acts of institutionalized racism uh, in you know, the last few decades. I mean, it was Clinton that abolished welfare. And 70% and of the original recipients were children. That was Clinton. Uh, it, was, it was Clinton. I teach in a prison, as you know, and, and half of my students wouldn't be there but for Clinton. And mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's interesting that when you get inside the prison, they're acutely aware. I mean, this rhetoric doesn't fly because they know what the Democrats did to their neighborhoods by militarizing police and creating internal armies of occupation in these, what Malcolm X used to call these internal colonies. They know who did that to them. And what's interesting is that, so this is through Rutgers and they earn their college degree. Uh, they can earn it in prison. And then if they have a 3.1, they can matriculate to Rutgers. So I have a lot of students who've matriculated or finishing their degree at Rutgers. They're very involved in organizing uh, unions for the service workers. And many of them are white and many of them voted for Trump. So mm -hmm. they get it. They get it. Um, and, and that's where the real dynamic, that's where real political opposition is emanating from. It's not emanating from Princeton, which is right down the street. They're just busy having kind of, you know, woke circle jerks. I have to bring up one more example of uh, this is an institutionalized racism of which many examples abound. And you listed a bunch. But of course, there was Bill Clinton flying back to Arkansas from campaigning uh, to oversee the execution of Ricky Ray Rector, who was an African-American uh, who had uh, was so mentally disabled, intellectually disabled, that he asked if he could save his last meal for the next day. No, no that's Clinton. I mean, but that's the Democrats. I mean, they made a conscious decision to become the Republican Party. And that whole issue to, to seize the quote unquote law and order issue from the Republicans. And Biden was at the forefront of this. And Naomi Mirakawa wrote a good book about this, The First Civil Right. And there's a lot in there about Biden. So Biden is expanding uh, the death penalty for a series of federal crimes. I think at the inception of that campaign, there were just a handful, two or three. By the time Biden and Clinton were done. There were 51 federal crimes that where the death penalty was mandated. And he bragged about this on the campaign trail. So they consciously and very cynically decided to sell out uh, the underclass, many of whom, of course, were people of color for political expediency. But the damage they did, the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of families that they destroyed uh, we, we don't talk about it. I mean, I see it. I see it in the prison. Uh, and uh, there's just no accountability. So, I, of course, I deplore and find disgusting Trump's overt racism. Uh, but uh, in terms of the students I work with, there was far more damage done to them and their families by the Clintons than by Donald Trump. And, and, the, and I will also add that the lies that the Clintons told were far more damaging to them than the lies told by Donald Trump. What do you mean by that? Well, because they talked about NAFTA. I mean, oh. they, they we're going to deindustrialize and we're going to be high tech and everybody will have uh, great jobs. Uh, we're going to deregulate the FCC. We're going to rip down the firewalls between commercial and investment banks, which led to 500 bank in the financial crisis of 2007, 2008, 500 ba U.S. banks went under, uh, precipitated or launched a global financial crisis. Canada never had a banking crisis because their equivalent of Glass-Steagall was not under Chrétien, was not discarded. It was uh, that firewall between investment and not, not allowing uh, your local bank to become a hedge fund. Uh, th those firewalls remained in place. So 
and then, of course, the whole uh, militarization of police forces, the putting a thousand more, a hundred thousand more police on the streets, the massive expansion of prisons physically. I mean, I think we went from about 700,000 before the Clinton uh, presidency incarcerated to now 2.3 million. That was all. And they, of course, in, in, in order to sell all of these policies, they lied through their teeth. And Bush couldn't get NAFTA through, but Clinton could. Yeah, well, he's a Democrat. Yeah, he was a Democrat and he was slick. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, Clinton, you know, and Biden, they, they decided they would they wanted corporate money and they would do corporate bidding. So by the end of the Clinton presidency, they had fundraising parity with the Republicans. But at that point, we are corporate coup d'etat, as John Ralston Saul points out, was over. Uh, they won and then get back to this rally on the 19th. Uh, they both are. Uh, completely captive to the war industry. I mean, in some ways, the Democrats are worse, actually. There's more opposition within the Republicans uh, than there is within the Democratic Party, including the Progressive Caucus. And not only do they give the, the war industry everything at once, they give it more. I mean, they, they, they gave it, what, 45 or $48 billion more than, than the Pentagon and the Biden administration asked for. And that's the, the budget has just been going up and up and up, you know, for the last, what, eight, 10 years. So there's it's with and the hundred what is it what are we up to 110 billion dollars to ukraine uh in humanitarian and military assistance well i mean the state department's budget is 60 billion a year we're almost double and where does it end and and also what are we going to get for it it's very much like afghanistan and iraq they don't know where they're going they don't have any strategic goal uh but it makes a lot of people rich i you know the the war industry uh, and all the same shills, all the same pimps of war, Victoria Nuland, Robert Kagan. I mean, I dealt with these people years ago, decades ago, back in Central America. Robert Kagan at the time was in the State Department working for Elliot Abrams and their entire office. I can't remember. He was undersecretary for something, Latin American Affairs. Their entire, uh, they spent uh, all of their time seeking to discredit all of the reporting those of us on the ground were doing to defend the brutal military regimes in Guatemala and in El Salvador and the Contras who were, uh, you know, just homicidal <laughs> racist killers. I mean, and, uh, and it doesn't matter how wrong they are. They're the ones who push the expansion of NATO. We would not have a war in Ukraine if NATO had not, as we had promised, not to expand NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany. They're the ones who uh, clamored for the wars in the Middle East, 20 years of fiascos. They're the ones, and they never go away. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. Uh, but of course, they're funded by the war industry and all of their think tanks, the Brookings Institute and Atlantic Council. They're just appendages of, of the war industry. So the only there's we aren't going to be able to confront the war industry from within. Even Bernie Sanders doesn't do it. Um, we're going to have to begin to organize. He votes for it. Yeah, of course he votes for it. Yeah. So we're going to have to organize, you know, as we did. I saw the power of that, you know, mass organizations in the 1960s. It freaked out the ruling class. That's our job is to make them afraid. We're going to have to uh, do that with uh, people who are, there are many issues we don't agree with them on, but at least we agree with them on the danger of permanent war. And let's not uh, skip the fact that that we are flirting with a nuclear holocaust, not only with Russia, but this thing with China is nuts. I mean, uh, you know, we, 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 what's absent from American media reports is the aggressive posture of the American military in the South China Sea. Uh, it's, it would be the equivalent of the Chinese fleet going up and down the coast of California. So, yeah, th these people are, I, I know some of them. And they're really limited, really frightening, amoral, not very bright. They kind of cover themselves in this veneer of Ivy League degrees and a kind of cloying snobbery. But they're very limited intellectually. They, they've never been outside of Washington. They're drunk with their own power and hubris. And, of course, they have made a very good living uh, being shills for, uh, for weapons manufacturers. And, and that's what they're doing once again, but there are no voices now, even on public uh, public radio or public TV, any voice. Uh, and I come out. I mean, I this I'm not an activist. I mean, I was 
in these places. I covered these wars. I spent years in these regions. But if you don't repeat that dominant narrative, it doesn't really matter how much experience you have. Uh, and so they are, you know, putting out these people who uh, will spout, uh, you know, w w what it is they're supposed to spout. They're kind of certified as specialists or experts. When in fact, if you look at their backgrounds and resumes, they they have very little experience, certainly uh, almost no experience in the countries they're talking about. This was especially true in in uh, on Iraq and Afghanistan. Chris, you are an ordained minister. And as you mentioned, you also covered the dirty wars in Central America in the 1980s. And I want to ask you about the role of, of Christian groups uh, back then in organizing against those dirty wars, both you know, inside Central America itself, but also the, solidar the solidarity groups in the U.S. and how effective they were in, tr in rolling back some of the uh, you know, catastrophic U.S. policies in Central America. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Such a smart guy, such a great speaker. Yes, and we'll link to his latest article about the need for a left-right coalition to take on war. And he will be speaking at the February 19th rally in D.C., Rage Against the War Machine. And for more from Chris Hedges, go to chrishedges.substack.com. And to see the full interview with Chris Hedges, which is, of course, excellent, go to usefulidiots.substack.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 